When the senior minister of the downtown Methodist congregation in Birmingham, Alabama, was asked to give the invocation at the commencement exercises of Birmingham Southern College, he was both honored and delighted. His daughter was one of the students who would be walking across the stage. He was, therefore, an obvious choice, but not only because he was a proud parent and also happened to be an alumnus, but because Birmingham Southern is a liberal arts college affiliated with the Methodist Church. But when that Methodist minister received instructions on how the day was supposed to go, he was more than a little bit perturbed to learn that the invocation he was asked to give was supposed to be non-sectarian. Despite its Methodist roots, the college wanted to honor the religious diversity of the audience who would be assembled that day. And given the requisite political correctness, the minister wondered aloud whether he should begin his prayer by saying, to whom it, is, to whom it may be concerned. The Apostle Paul, I think, must have had a similar reaction when he was walking around Athens and stumbled upon an altar that had been dedicated to an unknown God. How do you worship an unknown God? To whom do you direct your prayers when the deity in question is unknown? We might instinctively dismiss such an altar as evidence of a baseless religion, but Paul didn't see it that way. Paul saw that altar to an unknown God as an opportunity to engage the Athenians in a conversation about faith. I see how extremely religious you are in every way, Paul said to his audience with no small amount of flattery. To those who read the text, those who read and listen with monotheistic ears, those words contain some irony as well. But Paul decided to use that religious impulse within the Athenians as the starting point for his argument. Like every civilization in history, the Greeks had used religion as a way to structure their lives, to establish societal norms, to give meaning to inexplicable realities, and to provide direction and purpose for their life. In Paul's mind, the existence of an altar dedicated to an unknown God wasn't evidence of their faithlessness, but on the contrary, of their extreme religiosity. Religion, after all, is a search for the answers to life's universal questions. Like everyone else throughout history, the Athenians wanted to know what was good, to know that one day good would triumph, and to know that whenever it did, they would be found on the winning side. And to be sure of that, they had even built a shrine to an unknown god. To win them over, Paul didn't discount their religious impulse. Instead, he redirected it. He made his case for the God of Israel by focusing on what he had in common with the Athenians. From one ancestor, he explained to them, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. God allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live 
so that they all would search for God and perhaps grope for and find God, though indeed God is near each one of us. With those words, Paul celebrated the universal search among humans for the creator of us all. To underscore the commonality that Paul shared with his audience, he quoted not the Hebrew scriptures, but Greek philosophy and poetry when he said to them, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we too are his offspring. If we are all children of the one creator, Paul argued, then we must all share not only a common origin, but a common purpose. Paul saw in the Athenians that same religious impulse that had propelled the people of Israel to a covenanted relationship with their God. Like his own ancestors, the Athenians wanted to know what was virtuous and to know that ultimately virtue would triumph and to know what constituted a life of virtue. The Athenians, it seems, were willing to search for that virtue everywhere, but for Paul, that virtue not only had a name, but had proved itself beyond all doubt. As Paul himself had discovered on the road to Damascus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ had changed everything. Before the resurrection, God had made all the peoples of the earth, but had chosen to reveal God's self to Abraham and Abraham's children. Yet even from the beginning of that covenant relationship, God let God's people know that they had been chosen to reveal the light of salvation to all nations. Now that God had raised Jesus from the dead, Paul argued, that purpose had been fulfilled. In the resurrection, God had revealed to the world what God's ultimate victory over death would be like and indeed had brought the light of salvation to the whole human race. As Paul understood it, because of Easter, there is no longer any reason to wonder where good is to be found. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no longer a question of whether good will win. And for Paul, that was very good news indeed. Good news he wanted to share with the Athenians. So far, God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, he explained to them. But now... Now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom God has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, because of Jesus and his resurrection, we know for sure that one day God's goodness will triumph. There's no reason to search any longer, Paul said to the Athenians. You can stop offering sacrifices to unknown gods. Now is the time to repent and embrace the God whose identity and victory are certain. But when they heard his words, most of them were unconvinced. As soon as Paul mentioned the resurrection of the dead it seems he lost his intellectually astute audience. Some of them scoffed. Others gave the polite but probably insincere response, we will hear you again about this. 
Only a few, we are told, Dionysius and Damaris and a few others, only a few were open to his words. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us here in a city of higher education, a center of philosophy and intellectualism, that building an argument upon an empty tomb isn't an easy way to win converts. In fact, it's probably easier to obtain affirmative responses by appealing to the least common denominator of goodness and hope and humanity. But aren't we hungry for more than that? Don't we want more than a 21st century equivalent to an altar to an unknown God? Surely people are looking for something more concrete than the collective best intentions of a society that can't figure out how to balance economic concerns with the health and welfare of its workers. Don't we need to know for sure that in a world in which evil and greed and violence so often win the day, that God will, in the end, make all things new and right and perfect? We need the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus isn't a sign that God has the power to bring the dead back to life. The empty tomb isn't supposed to give us a glimmer of hope that we'll get another shot at life when this one is over. The resurrection is a sign that evil cannot win. It is God's declaration once and for all that no matter how strong the evil powers of this world may become, God's victory will always be stronger. Jesus wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected to a new and different kind of life, a life where God's goodness is complete. When that risen Jesus met the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, Paul got a glimpse of that new life and the world that was inaugurated because of it. And after that, nothing else mattered to him. He had seen the fullness of what is possible with God. And from that moment on, he knew with every fiber of his being that in the resurrection of Jesus, God had changed the world for the better. The empty tomb isn't part of the Christian faith. It's the whole thing. It's how we know that justice will win. It's our confirmation that righteousness will triumph. It's where we find the answers to the deepest longings of our existence, and it's where we go to give ourselves back to God, the God who satisfies our greatest hunger. We believe the resurrection of Jesus not because it makes sense, but because we need it to make sense of the world. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.